Hi, and welcome to Blissful Spinster. This week's guest is creativity coach and writer, Lee Medeiros. Lee lives in Rhode Island and is a published author. Her book, The One Minute Writer, is a fun handbook designed to help you flex your writing muscles and create your best work. She's a fellow screenwriter, having reached both the semi-final and final rounds of the Academy Nickel Fellowship's screenwriting competition, which is pretty spectacular if you ask me. And some of her most interesting work comes as a creativity coach and cheerleader for fellow artists, something I'm a fan of. Recently, she's become an advocate for combining environmental and climate change messaging in the art we create, including the scripts we write as a form of activism for our planet, which is super cool. It was so fun to reconnect and catch up with Lee, and we had a great conversation about creativity and the importance of being a cheerleader for our fellow creatives, which is something I really believe in. So however you found this podcast, thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this week's episode. Lee, I'm so happy you agreed to do this and be on my Blissful Spinster podcast. I am extremely excited slash nervous. (laughs) Not because we aren't going to have a great chat, but I have such a terrible memory that when people ask just basic direct questions, I'm like, so I'm going to do my best to be an interesting person for the listeners, but I can't make any promises. I'm going to tell you, you've always been interesting. Thank you, my friend. You're just always so into so many things. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you and just have a chat was because I think you have a really healthy relationship with creativity and why wanting to spread that out to everyone around you and the people that come in contact with you. I'm just wondering, what what were your beginnings in that world? What do you think? Were you always like that as a kid? What, What was going on? Yeah, it's interesting because there's so many different threads I can pull around creativity. So I do have an early memory And I want to say I was five years old, but I'm not exactly sure. And what I remember is I was writing with a blue crayon. So I was writing with a blue crayon age, and I had a poem come through. And I remember looking at the paper and thinking, I didn't write this. Like, I knew it was better than what I was capable of writing, meaning that it felt like I didn't have words for it or a consciousness around it, but felt like I was just transcribing something. And so that was really interesting, I think, for me. I don't necessarily connect that to like, and then that made me think I'm going to be an artist. I don't have that. But that is one of the few things I remember as an early memory of thinking, I didn't write this and this is pretty good. And so I think that was cool for me to have this understanding of creativity as a collaborative thing with something invisible. And then when I was, you know, in my earlier years, like elementary school into high school, I mostly did dance, although I did do like advanced like AP art class in high school portfolio class and I was going to art school. And so I did absolutely have that through line of creativity. And then in terms of supporting other artists, I got out of school and I did work for organizations. So I worked as a like a gallery assistant. I worked in a nonprofit doing like arts administrative support. And then just for a hot second for like a year and I was a middle school art teacher which was amazing and so all-consuming and stressful that that was, I think, 97. And I thought to myself, I could do this my whole life. I really could give myself over to teaching, but I will never make anything because I just can't imagine having the time to do that. Or I can continue to do 
my creative pursuits, which is what I chose to do. And then interestingly, it circled back around to supporting other people. Yeah, so there's all different threads in there. But the through line for the last 17 years has been supporting writers, mostly screenwriters, and more recently, memoir and nonfiction, creative nonfiction writers. But I had my own art gallery. I had for a short time a business with my husband where I was dyeing linens, and he was doing rustic wood crafted things. And there's just, of course, I worked in doing short films and producing. There's just all different things. Creativity is the through line, but all of the different arts practices are scattered about. (laughs) It's so cool because I think what you touched on, and I think I had a little bit of that too, was I, like my very first memory, one of my first memories in regards to coming into contact with film. So I'm the youngest of six. I I don't know if you remember that. And I grew up in Mexico and the whole family was in on a vacation in Acapulco. And the older kids, because I'm the youngest by seven years. Wow. You were planned. You were highly planned. I was very, I was highly unplanned. (laughs) I was three and all of us were home. Like my oldest brother, you know, I've got very sparse memories of him being home because he was actually, he'd been drafted in the early seventies, but he happened to be there at this trip to the beach and they all wanted to go see Planet of the Apes. So this would have been 73. I think it came out a couple years earlier, but in Mexico, we they'd get the films a couple years after they came out in the US. So they hadn't been able to see it and there was no babysitter because... You know, we were on vacation, so they took me. And I remember seeing the beginning of the film, like that they was starting, and I fell asleep. And I woke up, if you know the film, when he comes on Statue of Liberty, when Charlton Heston comes on the Statue of Liberty and screams no. Wow. And it's such, it's ingrained in my memory, this, like, it was a portrait of art being displayed for my little brain. And I just was mesmerized by it. And I don't, that's the only thing I remember from that film. And I've seen it a couple times since. I know the film. Wow. It's like an iconic moment. Yeah, that iconic moment. And then a couple years later, when I was eight, my sister took me to see Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And I came out of that going, I want to make that. Awesome. Like I had figured out something like you, something told me that someone had made that and told a story visually. And I had connected in it in such a way that I was like, I want to figure out how to do that. Awesome. But what I love is that what we're both talking about to me is you're having a conversation with something inside of you. Yeah. You were talking about, you didn't know if you had written it. Well, you did. It was just something in your subconscious that you were connecting with or something that was helping you write with the crayon. Yeah. It's, it's funny because I feel like it's outside of me. Sometimes I think I'm collaborating with an external force. <laughs> like sometimes I think creativity is its own unbodied consciousness or something. And I think that actually probably a lot of people who listen to this would have heard Elizabeth Gilbert's TED Talk from back in the day. I don't know if you ever heard that, but she talks about, she gives an example of a poet and I'm not going to remember the poet's name and the poet would transcribe poems that came to her, the poet told this story of being outside, I don't know, I'm going to say working in the garden and quote unquote, like feeling a poem coming across the landscape Mm -hmm. at her and rushing by. And that she, the idea that Elizabeth Gilbert conveys is that this woman grabbed the poem by the tail, ran into the house and transcribed it, but transcribed it backwards. So the end of the poem came out first. And so it was this idea that if you don't 
there was two ideas. One that there is this these ideas that are floating around that we're we can that kind of tap us on the shoulder and then we work with them. But the other part of that is if you don't, and you know this being in film, it's gonna go to the next person. And how many times have you been like, I've got a great idea, I gotta write it down. And then the next thing you know, it's guess what new TV show or film is coming out? And you're like, Oh, I thought of that two years ago. Not that exact thing, but you know what I mean? No, I know that exact thing. I the thing to me though, and Somebody said this to me early, early on was, yeah, 50 people can have the same idea or 100, but only you are writing it from your viewpoint. Yeah. And I think we forget that Mm -hmm. often, right? So like the the script or the movie I'm trying to get made, Alone Girl, is very personal. It's like 70, 75% of it is conversations that I've had throughout my life or thoughts or whatever to get to where I am, which is very, very happy in my 50s with my cats and single and I don't need a relationship and thank you very much for asking. But like, we're not allowed that as women. Yeah. Even today. I mean, I, I think it's getting a little better with younger millennials, maybe and Gen Z. They're starting to see that regardless of what gender or identity or wherever you ascribe, you can be in a relationship or single and it's okay to be whatever you want to be. And I love that. But I still think the media is feeding, whether it's books, whether it's movies, whether whatever it is, it's still feeding that that myth that that our happiness as women is outside of ourselves. We don't get it until somebody picks us to be in a relationship. Yes. And it turns toxic. It turns, there's women out there who will stay with a relationship that's abusive because it's scarier to be single than to be in a relationship for them. And I just think that's horrible. Right. Right. Like we shouldn't be, we should be allowing ourselves to be whoever we want to be, regardless of what that is, however we define ourselves. It's so interesting to me because I think it's almost like this weird human evolution where in order to be safe, you needed to be with people. So whether that was your Mm -hmm. literal tribe or, and then of course there's procreation of the species, right? So it's like, for maybe a long time, a bio- this is I'm just talking off the top of my head. Hopefully, yeah. this is not controversial, but just this idea that there is a biological urge to be paired in some way with other humans. And then, along with technology and all of the ways that we've evolved as a species, that is no longer necessary. And it's almost like this dying mindset that we're seeing the tail end of this idea that you're not safe, or even people who are evolved will say, but you secretly want a relationship relationship under that right yeah. or like you you can say you're okay but I don't believe you you really are lonely you know all of that stuff under there there's it's like a person's own baggage gets translated to that and it is a journey right because I'm sure you had to go through your own yeah. process of discovery to get to a point where it's wait a minute I'm not even it's not I, and I don't know I'm not gonna put words in your mouth but I'm sure for some people in your position it's not that I'm actively rejecting it's more that I'm actively accepting myself and who I am and where I am and I'm not making this other person who is not even in my realm just a person that's an invisible idea I'm not making them a central focus to my life it is to bring it back to what got us on this is I just read a book called the spinster diaries and interviewed the author and she's a tv writer and someone could have said weren't you scared because maybe it looks like your story and it her story is nothing like my story but we need both of those we need that representation 
so that young women can see that it's okay. Like, there's nothing wrong with you if you don't want a relationship, whether that's right now or whether that's ever. It's okay. But what you were saying with evolution, yes, I will not dispute that. There's an evolutionary need to procreate. But not anymore. And yes, there was safety in numbers. When the big saber-toothed tiger came, it was probably good to have a group of people fighting it. Yeah, all of that stuff. But there's also this added element of... What we know of is modern day marriage and all of that stuff is a relic of the patriarchy. Yes. <laughs> and it's it was a business contract. Yep. Between a man and a woman's parents. And you were traded in for whatever. Who has generally been in charge of writing what we consume and what we read? White men. Most of history. Yep. From hundreds and hundreds of years ago. So what we know of love and marriage, even as the idea changed and all of that, is the viewpoint of that. So so men and women are learning about women from white men. Right. Heter heteronormative patriarchal framework. Yeah. And you were talked about my journey. I did go through. So in my teens and in my 20s, I don't think I really paid it. I was just really laser focused on trying to get into the position I'm in now trying to make a film. But I think my journey was meant to be what it is now. I wasn't necessarily ready to take that on even as bold and as whatever I was to ask people. And But in my mid 30s to mid 40s, I started going, is, there, is it me? Is it something? It, are, is everyone right? Is what I'm watching and what I'm and what people are telling me and friends and whatever? Is there something wrong with me? Should I? So I gave it a try. Like I was like, yeah, I dated, I did, I had white night stands, I had whatever it is. And I realized one morning, I think, like I had this, wait a minute, this is all being told to me by people who don't understand me. We're being gaslit just by society and we need to dismantle that. Yes. It was interesting because it's in 2018, a mutual friend of ours, Bill Pruitt, I came into his office at some point because we were working on a show, he was show running. And he said something and I go, no, I'm done. I'm just done with it. I don't, I want to be single. I'm, you know, that's it. And he goes, oh, that's a movie. And I go, what? He goes, a bunch of friends trying to get somebody who's decided they want to be single, you know, like that process. And I go, that's a pretty funny idea. And then I sat on it for, he kept going, just write it. And I'm like, no, 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 I got to think about this. Because that's how I, my process is. I think about something and really work things out in my head. And then I just do cards. And then I write. I do not do outlines. I do not do, like, that is just not me. I, I want to be surprised. But cards is a form of yes. It is. But I'm talking, there's the really deep dive out lining that I see people doing and that's awesome and brilliant for them to me I'd be like losing the spontaneity of what my characters give me on the page as I'm writing but what I wanted was to figure out a story that challenged that idea that we we're talking about and that turned it on its head and took and I was like the perfect thing is to take the rom-com and turn it on its head and figure out a way to make an audience cheer for the woman to be single because we've never seen that and that's what I've written. Yes. Here for it. How much are you sharing with your podcast audience about the, like, are you going to give us the log line? What can you tell us? Oh, I, I can do that. How I, much can we talk about it? I've done that on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Girl, the log line that's gone around the world. Here's the thing is I was told very early on in my career in the 90s with a screenwriter. He was like, never be afraid to show your work because it's never going to get made unless you show it. Wow. Like talking about it on Twitter, basically. Well, there was no Twitter in the 90s. But yeah, it was the only way you're going to get something made or get seen. And, and again, your voice is your voice. 
So yes, a story may be similar to something else, like we were talking about in the beginning, but it's never going to be what you wrote. And if you've got your biggest fan, your first fan has to be you in your work. And that's another thing that I've learned on my journey. And I'm much more like it's been three years or so that I'm trying to get this film made and the meetings and the finance stuff and all of that stuff. And I'm getting better and better at these meetings and learning and just more secure. And I think you need to go through that. All films take a few years to get made. Man, the com- the confidence piece is so important in the industry. Yeah. Right? So many people thrive in the industry. Yeah. And you, and we didn't start with it. So I don't want people thinking that I was, I've always been like, you know, no, I had a plan at a straight. I've gone to a pitch class that was given by Emily Best from Seed and Spark that super helped. I've been to, you know, cause I'm terrified of speaking in front of people. Oh, but amen to that. <laughs> yeah. So when I started doing my short films, I made, I was like, okay, I need to deep dive in this. Go to all of the festivals it goes and do all the Q and A's. And then I made a promise to myself. I was like, if somebody asks a question that's meant for everyone, you know, because usually in short films, it's all the directors that are up on the stage and there's a lull, even for two seconds, you answer it. Jump in. You jump in and you answer jump it. In. Amazing. And I started doing that and I just got myself more comfortable. And then you get more comfortable on the one-on-ones. And I mean, I had a meeting. You said, how open am I to all of this stuff? Is We're trying to get development funds out of a venture capitalist group. And the meetings I've had with the heads of that group, I've got them to love me and to love the project. Now it's like, what's going to get them to that last 5%? Commit the funds. To give us the funds. Because he's already committed to helping us get the film funded, but it's... It's, it's getting him to actually click over some of those funds. At this level, you do need some money to then approach the actors with. Yeah. So I want some name actors. I Part of my mission with this is to make a $5 million film that's my first film to show that a female writer-director can do that because that's not done very often. Yeah. However, it's done with men quite a bit. And I would say, just going back to something that you said earlier, the thing that I find upsetting and is also part of that patriarchal mindset when people have said to you, oh, are you scared because you heard about one other TV show with a similar concept? It's like, oh, all of the different male-oriented, traditionally hetero-male-oriented things, there's 9,000 variations. And I guarantee nobody ever says to them, oh, are you scared that you wrote a, a movie about two boxers and there's other boxing movies? Are you scared that this is like a movie about some racetrack? Or like, it's, oh, geez, two movies? Two movies about a woman who's happy alone? I'm not sure. <laughs> it's really, it's like people have to undo that mindset that there's this, mm-hmm. oh, this one character who could be seen one time and there's no other versions of what that could mean. And the thing is, is like, look around you. How different are you from your friends? That's how different all these stories are. And they, sh- they all deserve a place. Yeah. They do. They all deserve to be heard. On that same line, I'm on writer Twitter like you are, and we'll see things, you know, people tweeting and whatever, and someone will tweet, we're looking for a, a script coordinator or a writer's PA in their room. And I'll send that tweet to a couple of my friends who are young women of color who that's what they want to do is they want to write TV and be in a room and they've maybe just been a production secretary on something or been and I'll get this response back yeah but I don't have it says I need experience I go you need to send this in because there's a hundred mediocre guys sending it who have 
the same or less credits than you and experience. And you don't know what they're looking for. And they might see you and go, oh, that's perfect. That's right. And actually, that's exactly what I was talking about when I said confidence goes so far in the industry, because what I was thinking about was mostly men who will just more easily embrace the fake it till you make it mentality, more easily be conditioned and attuned to just like plowing forward with like, yes, sure, I've only written one script, but I'm going to send it out and I'm going to like confidently go forward. Whereas, and I suffer from this too, I will rewrite and rewrite and tweak and rewrite and just make something quote unquote perfect and take forever. And it's really like the lack of confidence in my abilities Part of it is wanting things beyond the obvious, which is, of course, you want things to be as best as you can make them, but there is an extra layer beyond that. It's that this is not a finished product. A script is not a finished product. You want it to be good. You want it to, you want, yes, your voice to come across. You want to do well with it. But the mistake in making that it has to be perfect, it's, it does not have to be perfect. This is not a novel. This is something that is going to be collaborative. It's a blueprint that is inevitably going to change no matter how quote unquote perfect you make it. And as a woman, I think, if we're talking about a traditional, again, this traditional binary of men and women, and of course, there's a gender spectrum. So I want to recognize that. But in the traditional binary, it's just been for a long time, very easy for men to have the confidence to go forward when the work is mediocre, and to have even some success at that, not even, but definitely some success at that. And then there's many gifted women who I would put you and maybe me in the category of that where it's like feeling nervous about speaking up feeling nervous about taking certain types of meetings, not feeling ready, not feeling like, you know, what do we have to offer? All of the turmoil that you go through that's separate from the quote unquote product, that's separate from the script, all of that emotional stuff around it. It's like that is such a process to work through. And I'm definitely I'm 100% in that process of continuing to work through it. I'm not a person who could go pitch around town and do all of that stuff, ironically, because I'm organizing a pitch fest right now, but (laughs) supporting other writers. But yeah, it's really like you said, it's it's like, like you said, you've been doing this for a couple of years now with a lone girl going to meetings and meetings and getting better. Do you have that part of you that's like, I could have done this back then if I know now, if I know, if I knew then what I know now. Is there a part of you that's like, oh, I wish you could go back and talk to that person? Or do you really feel like, no, there was a lot of skills that I didn't have? So I, I started writing really early on, like right after seeing that Close Encounters. Like I was writing short stories when I was in elementary school. I clearly remember a teacher reading one to the class. And I wasn't the greatest student. I graduated from high school with more D's than you want to know. I got into one college and I found out later it was because of my essay, because it certainly wasn't because of my transcript. And it's because (laughs) I wrote a short story. I didn't write an essay that I was told by the admissions officer. I don't know if this is true, but this is what he said. He said about 80 to 85% of the essays they get for college admission is this is why I did so badly, or this is why it's like this excuse for their transcript. Wow. And I wrote a short story about where, because at the time I was, a, I thought I'd go into journalism, even though I'd always wanted to do film, but it was the camera and photography was the closest thing I could get to that. And I ended up being the photo journal, the photo editor for the newspaper and the yearbook. By the time I graduated high school, my best friend's father at the time was the head of the AP bureau down there. So I knew him, but also got to know all these photojournalists who were taking pictures in Panama and Nicaragua during all those conflicts and, and and you hear all those stories and then you see Salvador and like the movie and you're like, oh, I want that life. But I also saw it as an artist's journey. If you do that, 
you get stories to write. But I ended up, the journalism professor couldn't remember my name in college. So I ended up switching to theater. And so I have two degrees in theater. Meaning oh, multiple times this person just could not remember who you were. Oh yeah, multiple times. And my advisor couldn't remember my name. And this is a school with eight, this was in New Hampshire. It's a tiny school called New England College, 800 students. The town it's in, a thousand. So we doubled the size of the town when the school was in session. So that admission. How did you translate that when they, what did that mean to you when they couldn't remember your name? What did that, what did you make that mean for you? He didn't really care about the students he was teaching. Great. So it was about him, not about you. Yeah, it was about him. It wasn't about me. That's what I was trying to figure out. Good. I'm glad you translated it that way. Yeah. (laughs) I didn't know if you were going in the direction of, so I decided then I shouldn't be a journalist because nobody can remember me. No, 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 no. What happened was, so I came into college really, and I was born extroverted, I'm pretty sure, or some sort of extrovert. I was pretty gregarious as a little kid, but through, because I went to school in Mexico and no disrespect because everybody's going through their own stuff and kids can be mean not because of you you know and and this I came to a little later like if you had talked to me in one of my early 20s I would have been like everyone was a jerk to me and I got bullied and yes I did and it turned me into the wallflower like I my defensive mechanism became make yourself invisible and hide behind that camera that you're taking pictures of everyone but the truth is when you look back at those times, they're difficult for you, but also something's going on in everyone else's lives that's driving that. And we're all going through things and we all have raging hormones and we all have, we've all got questions and our parents are doing stuff that we don't understand or so whatever's going on is driving a lot of that. And I'm not saying that we should excuse bullying or anything. I'm just saying this is how that chip got released and you need to release those things or you don't grow. Right. And it all, to be honest, made me who I am today. That's right. That whole journey. Yeah. And what you're talking about, I was just bold for whatever reason from when I was, my mom used to say I raised myself. She said I was born and I was so independent that I raised myself. And so I, I always knew I was going to live in California and LA and make movies, but I was studying theater and technical theater because I figured it'd make me a better writer. So this is after journalism. Yeah, once I got in, because the theater professor pulled me aside and he was like, you're getting all these A's on my test, but you don't talk in class. What is your background? I said, well, I did all of these plays in high school because I was either in the dark room (laughs) or I was was doing the technical stuff for plays because a play is the closest thing you can get to a feature film. Right. And in Mexico, I couldn't find scripts for movies, but I could find all of Shakespeare, which I read by the time I graduated high school, regardless of whether I was learning it in class or not. But he was like, what are you doing studying journalism then? And then I went home and he knew my name and he asked, he directly asked me a question in class, which I got to tamp down a student called Vinny, <laughs> who was a fifth year senior. If he's out there, I love you, Vinny. But he, he asked, it was a Neil Simon play we were reading, Brighton Beach Memoirs. And Glenn Stewart, who's a fantastic professor and helped shape the person I am today. I and mean, if he's listening to this, thank you very much. If somebody sends this to him, that'd be great. But hint, hint. Hint, hint. <laughs> no. So he turned and asked me how I would, as a scene designer, decorate, I can't remember the character's name, but the son that Matthew Broderick played him. I can't remember. Somebody played him famous on Broadway. But I, I, before I could answer in a show of mansplaining, Mind you, it's 1989, so this was my first semester of undergrad. Vinny jumps in and goes, ah, well, he would have posters and a signed ball and all of this stuff for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Uh, Or it was the Yankees, I can't, it was one of the New York teams. And I go, and Glenn goes, really? First off, I thank you very much, but I asked Chris. And he goes, what do you think? And I go, 
that's totally wrong. They don't have money for that stuff. He'd have newspaper clippings and maybe a pennant he found that's dirty that fell on the ground. I go, I don't think he would have anything that looks like it would cost money. And Glenn's that's exactly right. Brilliant. Really understanding character to then understand props. And that's actually why I decided to study the technical and design side of theater. Not So I was a create, English creative writing major and a theater. So I was a double major in undergrad. And then I have a master of fine arts in theater technology. Wow. What an underachiever. <laughs> yeah. But all of that was in the service of becoming a better screenwriter in my head and a better storyteller. Because like you said, a script is a is not a finished product, especially a movie script, a play or a script, a movie script, a screenplay, if I can say that, a screenplay. They're a living document that is there for the purpose to collaborate yep. and to make the finished product, which is either a play that is performed on stage or a movie that is projected, a visual or a TV show. And it's a conversation between the screenwriter or the playwright and all the other artists, whether it's an actor, whether it's a scene designer, whether it's a cinematographer, whether it's a PA. Right. You are having a conversation with every single person that is touching your script. And somehow in my young brain, I realized if I understood all of those roles, I would know how to write a script that would communicate to all of them so that my vision would show up on screen or on, because I've written plays as well, or on stage. And so that's why I went that route. How old were you when you wrote your first screenplay? So I started writing shorter things in Girl Scouts. Like movie scenes? Short scripts that were based on like Simon and Simon TV show that I used to watch. Oh yeah. I remember we performed that. <laughs> so you were literally writing a spec script for Simon and Simon. That's amazing. Yeah, I think I was 12 or 13. I was huge into moonlighting and I would say that was probably the first script I, st I started trying to write. I think I have it somewhere in the garage. That's That strikes me as unusual that you were really understanding that you could write an episode of TV because I feel like so many people get started because they have, oh I have an idea and it's like their own idea of something which they think is the most brilliant thing that's ever been thought and they want to write it down and make it into a movie but it's really cool that you were like, oh I wanna, I'm going to take my favorite show and I'm going to write an episode of it. Yeah. And it was interesting because it was, it obviously starred me and my friends and it happened in Mexico and our parents had been kidnapped. And I think the opening scene was Bruce Willis's character. I think his name was David. I can't remember. Listeners can jump in and eviscerate me for not remembering the character's name. But, but he came in and turned the light on and there we were asleep in sleeping bags on the floor in his office and we came to hire him to help find our parents or something. I love it. I think was the whole thing. And they had to go to, like him and Maddie had to go to Mexico. And I think initially, like when I came to LA, I had a Northern Exposure spec and I had an X-Files spec. The X-Files spec I worked through in grad school. I moved to LA February 96 and I had the two scripts. And then I wrote a spec was that it was Sliders. It was the Jerry O'Connell show because I was into sci-fi at the time. And then I wrote my first feature which was called Ripple. And then I started on a trilogy that I kind of worked on through the years. And then there was a moment where I went up the reality unscripted world. That's when I met you. Yeah. And so my knee got hurt in 98 on a Hallmark Christmas movie. Oh, God. And I was out for nine months. <laughs> was it worth it, Chris? 
No, I'm just, I've been known to watch a Hallmark movie. Well, no, the Hallmark Christmas movies are a theme in my script. The character, like me, and I'll admit this, I'm obsessed with them. Amazing. Mainly because of the Christmas porn. Because (laughs) I didn't see snow until I was 19. Oh. Because I grew up in Mexico. Right. And there's all these pictures of my family having these white Christmases. And I, I was missing a memory I never had. Oh, because they had moved from the States down to Mexico before you. They had moved from New Hampshire. Yeah. And so there's five kids with their coats. Sleds. Sleds and stuff. And I'm like, why didn't I get that? Amazing. And so Hallmark Christmas movies, they give me that every year. So now I'm picturing you injuring your knee as you're shaking a box of like white snow onto the... Was it really... Were you ever... Are they ever really filming in places that have snow? No, we were... We No, we were not. It was, I think, summer or something. I don't know. Or yeah. Spring. And we were on the Warner Brothers lot, if you've been on it, with the gazebo. Years, years ago. Well, it's the same spot they shot Gilmore Girls. Like that gazebo, that's in that film. If that gazebo could talk. Yeah. <laughs> So I ended up like working for a director as his assistant for a company. The company kept me as a PA. And at that point, I hadn't worked for nine months. And I was like, oh, a steady runner job? Sure. And they ended up selling one of the first reality shows out of the U.S. Because most of them, Survivor and Big Brother, were from Europe. Interesting. They were European property that was licensed to be done in the U.S. So it was called Temptation Island. I remember. I'm not sure that I've ever seen any of it. You don't have to. And I don't know why they rebooted it. But I got to go to Belize. And I turned 30 there at that point and And came back and couldn't get hired on narrative because there was a big rift. Ugh. And now nobody knows the different. Nobody cares. You can work on a, you can hop between, which I love. That's great. That's good to know. But that was not so in in 2000, 2001. It's so different. But you asked if I thought I could do what the script or what I'm up to now back then. And no, because I've been witness in the unscripted world to so many being invited to people's lives to tell their, to help tell their stories. You saw the thing I did with Angelica, which is a environmental, beautiful little short doc that I made. To get to be welcomed into people's lives and to be there when they're at their highs and their lows and then go into post and get to listen to all of those interviews and watch the footage and try to help tell their story in the best way possible. But also you get to hear how people speak. So it makes your dialogue a thousand times better and it makes your storytelling a thousand times better. Right. And so the script I wrote, and I think I shocked my friend who I was talking to, Jack. He's a director I used to assist in the 90s. I go, yeah, that's this is my 28th draft. The draft that I've got that I'm going to shoot is the 28th draft of that, of Alone Girl. And it's because you have to, it's in the rewrite. Absolutely. When you shape it. And when you say 28th draft, it's like, are you counting all of the different, there's the huge overhaul drafts, and then there's the drafts where I'm changing this character, I learned something new about this character, so I'm tweaking this person's dialogue from start to finish. Yeah, or you're, I really think I need to add a scene here with the, it's at the, at its heart, it's a father-daughter. So you asked a long time ago what the logline is, it's a coming of middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy. And it's about a woman in her late 40s, early 50s, who gets sent on a mission to find a partner by her dying father. They learn very early on that his cancer's back and it's stage four. And he basically has a conversation with her going, the only thing I ever wanted was to walk you down the aisle. Wow. To know that you're taken care of. And it and she starts the film happy. You see her skateboarding and super happy, like just in general. And she comes home. It's a really fast way to show you visually that 
that everything's cool with her. She comes home and everything that society puts on us, whether it's plucking, having to pluck things off of our face or seeing all the Facebook posts of everyone that's in relationships or getting the call from your friend that the whatever your married friend complaining about there. Right. <laughs> you know, and then going, you don't understand because you're single. All of that stuff kind of starts encroaching and the journey is actually her figuring out that she's actually happy where she was at when we started the film. Incredible, because the usual trajectory is uh, always a bridesmaid, never a bride, lonely heart, Miss Lonely Heart, and then the journey to get to happiness, which is the partner. Yeah. And so this is showing the happiness. And then as the journey goes on, the unhappiness that sets in as they get closer and closer to being forced into partnership, really. Yeah. And then the discovery, I presume, of no, <laughs> the happiness is was there. This is not, this is an external. It was already here. Yeah. Incredible. That sounds really moving with the father and the, you know, the, the family tension in the center of it. And I love, love, love the phrase an unromantic. What did you say? Unromantic, romantic comedy. It's a coming of middle age story wrapped in an unromantic comedy. Both of those phrases are so clever because they're just spins on thing that you hear all the time. But as soon as you say both of those phrases, it's, I know what it is. I know the vibe you're going for, the tone, and I haven't seen it before. That's rad. I mean, my whole mission is to give women like us in our age the insight to see somebody complicated and flawed of our age, unapologetic about it. Yes. And grappling with the things we grapple with. And not a side character. No. There's plenty of, un, uh, like, that sidekick character. That's the wacky sidekick. And she's... It's quirky. That wants to... Oh, she just wants to be single. That's quirky. Yeah. No. That's just a decision. It's a choice. You're, you're like, this person is going to be in their full humanity as a single person. Yeah. And then I want younger women to see a film where a woman's allowed to be all those things. I had a table read early on and one of the, my friend Caroline, who's one of the producers on this as well, is such a wonderful creative human being and she's a casting director who's jumping into producing. And But she helped me pull this cast together. She brought in this young woman who's in her 20s. There's very few characters in their 20s and I did that by design because actors of that, like all of the actresses have to be in their 40s. I've had them like, what about this person? And I'm like, nope. Too young. Now, because it's been a couple of years, I'm like, oh, that person now aged in. Okay, maybe. Yeah. But, because I've been very steadfast about that. But that actress wrote after the table read, and it was one of the most touching things, because I was like, this is exactly what I was trying to do, is she wrote Caroline, who then forwarded it to me, thanking me for writing the script, where she got to see love and romance from a different point of view because she's an introvert and had been wondering herself if there was something wrong with herself. And then she got to read and be part of this thing where she's like, wow, no, there's nothing wrong with you. We're all on our own journeys. And my heart just, this is why I wrote this. So moving. So validating. Incredible. It's so validating. And also just, that's, that's the success, like, that's the success I want is we're in a theater and I hear people laugh or reaction to something I've written and made for them, but also to be able to touch people that way. I love that. I want to speak it into existence. So I want you to tell me what's your dream in terms of the dream financing, the dream development company, the dream 
release? Like what, tell me it, like what's, what does it look like if you were talking about it now and it was happening? So I have a really great producing team, which the lead producer is BD Ganell, and she's really fantastic and she's up and coming. She's had films at Tribeca and stuff like that. And Excellent. I can't like, we're like peas in a pod trying to figure this out. And she's got other movies that are in the slate too. And I'll try to help because like you said, the whole cheerleading thing is we got to help each other as we all rise, right? Together. And the dream would be to find a woman who's actually willing to finance this female-led production team, but also those are really hard to find. Female investors are few and far between for film, and I wish that was was different because equity would change. Yeah. The kinds of stories we get told would change. So people like Mindy Kaling and Reese Witherspoon, are they? Well, they're TV. I don't know. Reese did Wild as well. But she really, and I love Reese, don't get me wrong, and I think she's done a lot, but I often see her stuff and she's in them. And this isn't a film. They're just to find their own. As much as I, I love her, I want actually this film to have a, be a platform for me to be able to broaden people's idea of who can play what characters. And so the lead is actually a biracial actress. In, she's British. Her name's Sophie Okonedo. So anyone out there who knows her, let me know. I love that. So she's attached. No, she's not attached yet. I'm saying. Oh, that's the, oh, we're talking about our dreams. I asked you to talk about your dreams. You were doing such a good job of talking like it's going happening that I got confused for a second. <laughs> okay. I see her. She's in it. Yeah. So she, so Sophie is a British actress. She's got a Tony nomination and an award. She won one for Raisin in the Sun, I want to say. She won the won it and got nominated for Crucible on Broadway. I think she's got a few BAFTA nominations. She has an Emmy nomination. She has an Academy Award nomination and has never been given a lead. Wow. She's in her early 50s and she's never been given a lead. And she is such a fantastic actress. I'm... I'm- visioning this incredible alignment. So the father, I want someone like Jeff Bridges or Michael Douglas. The mom's passed away. And it's very much my story. My I couldn't have written the script until both of my parents passed away. Because a lot of the weight I felt about being in a relationship to a certain extent was them. It was their desires being put on you. And so the dream is to get it's a $5 million budget, and it's to get those kind of caliber actors attached and then done. With you directing, of course. With me directing, yeah. And it gets shot in L.A. because it takes place in L.A. and a little bit in Santa Barbara, but the Santa Barbara part's just a house that can be done at, at Palisades or Malibu. It's like you have a, a lot of great people already on your side. and you're. That's what I'm working on. That's what they tell you. You build a good team around you especially on your first film. And that's what I'm working on. Okay, so so by this time next year, you're in the awards contender uh, <laughs> festivals. And somebody asked me, I go, the, for the future, I go, I see an Academy nomination. That's what I see. I love it. She's just going right for it. Yeah. I love it. I'm always like, this is why I ask, because I am not Ironically, I'm not a great visionary in the sense that I tend to live like two weeks behind. So I'll be thinking about things that happened to last week or the week before. And then I think ahead about three or four months, <laughs> maybe. So I, I love, I'm always like dreams, goals. I guess I should get some of those. I'm like respond. I'm creating, but I'm also responding. And I do wish I got a little bit better at the longer term visions. And so I love that you're speaking that into existence so with such a surety and feeling into it. Because I think that makes such a huge difference. I think that there's many ways to create. It's who we are. We're creative. To be alive is to be creative, period, end of story. People misunderstand that creative means that they're artistic. 
artistic. That's a different thing. Every single human is creative. Not every single human is artistic, which does not mean they should not engage in the arts because I think they should. But there is a different thing what people tend to say about this person has natural talent. That means they, I think, tend towards the artistic. But if we're just talking about creativity, which we are, and every single person's creative, I think a way to really maximize one's own creativity is to feel into something as if it's already happened, as if it's assured, you know, and then you can let it settle into your bones and your heart and your mind and fix that into yourself. And I think it really does help with one's trajectory. So I'm good at creating in the moment. I'm not as good about that remembering to fix things into my heart and mind because my brain will go, that seems so unbelievable and so unrealistic. And And that's the trick of it is to override that part of you that says that's unrealistic and whatnot and just tuck it aside. Okay, I hear you. I get your skepticism and your doubt. You're over here. That voice has been clocked. Now I'm going to make some space for the voice that is going to go, yeah, oh yeah, of course. Yeah, of course we're going to get an Oscar. Of course we're going to be standing on stage. I can see I'm imagining my outfit right now. Like what? Yeah, let's talk about this. Are we going to do sequins? What are we, are we doing off the shoulder? What's happening? So you're doing all the things. You're ticking all of the boxes in all of the ways. We have to give ourselves permission. Right. Especially as women, because we're taught we can't, like, I think that's how we've been raised. And I don't know about younger generations so far, because I think they're told a lot more that they can be whatever they want or make sure you go into STEM if that's what you like, which I love all of that. Yeah, they're amazing. But our generation... I'm, I'm definitely not in the camp of dogging on millennials and whatnot. Yeah. And the, and the next, I, I think they're amazing. I think millennials are amazing and Gen Z that's coming up is amazing. And God, no, I don't know why they're into 90s clothing, but that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my God, girl, I keep calling, I keep saying to them, I'm like, you're going to regret this. Trust me as a person who lived through it. the baggy clothes and the dad sneakers. No, it's not going to fly. I'm, I, but God bless it. This has been an awesome conversation. I and- feel we could go and go, but I really loved hearing what you're doing. And I'm very inspired by not just the way you're going about it, which I think is really cool. And just pulling people in, really sticking to your guns about who you want to be in the center of this project. But I'm really moved by by the script itself from what, I, what I'm hearing, all of the the themes and the, just the tone. I'm a, probably enough about me to know that like dramedy and the dramedy genre is my fave because I think personally it most closely resembles life. And what you've been talking about really has so much potential for both comedy and drama. And I can envision all of the range of emotion. And I just think it's ripe and ready. And I I'm really excited to hear about it and to hopefully we'll just this we'll just put like the ellipse at the end of this conversation dot and we'll just keep chatting and hopefully there'll be more alignment now that I know now that I know all of the details it's oh when I hear about people that are looking for something or want to jump in on something it's oh connected to my friend Chris I this might be a good match that's awesome that's and that's part of what I wanted to do this podcast for too is to so you're someone we didn't talk about it initially but We've only met in person once, and yet we've kept in touch on social media and here. But what I'm getting at is it's about making those connections and keeping them alive. Yeah. And then speaking what you want or what your truth or having these conversations. And this is part of the journey, right? Right. You may think of someone to connect me to, you may not, but these conversations help me be better in my meetings too. Yeah. I think when you work in LA and you're in and around the industry, you have that mental Rolodex. And I think there are plenty of people who use 
the mental Rolodex only for themselves. So it's like, tick, oh, okay, this person is worth knowing because they could help me down the line. And fortunately, I'm not that kind of person, which means I generally don't attract the, those kinds of people. The people that I hang with are the people where it's like the Rolodex is used for everyone. It's like, yeah. oh, wow, like we're connectors. And that's, I think, the best, the, the best folks in the industry. I mean, Hollywood gets a lot of shit from the outside. And of course, it's well-deserved in a lot of cases. But I do think as a whole, there's a lot of really great people in the industry. And there's the normalization of helping each other because it is so collaborative. You cannot get things done without collaborating. And so it's interesting we didn't get into it, but it's like, as you know, I was, you know, adjacent. I was orbiting around the industry and then I went sort of sidestepped into the book world and then more recently got back in because I'm doing a lot of climate storytelling work with the screenwriters and stuff like that. And there are old connections that pop up in some funny ways that make me laugh in terms of, oh my gosh, I had this weird interaction with this person and, and here they are again and thank God there was no bridges burned that could have been back then because here we are 15 years later in the same realm again and it's all good but it makes me laugh because it's like Hollywood is not as big as you think it is and people's memories aren't as long or short I guess I should say and so it's just fun to reconnect with everybody and especially with you and just hear what you're up to and also what's really cool about old friends in the industry is the evolution of where what where you were at and what you were working on then and where you're at and what you're working on now so I'm really grateful that you invited me and we got to just catch up and hear what's going on and I really I can't wait to I can't wait for the next is there anything you want people to know about yeah I have some things to say real briefly because my focus is really around the role of screenwriters in the climate movement and what I want screenwriters to think about so a lot of people will talk about sustainable production so they will talk about diesel generators plastic on set that the idea of sustainability is always focused on production and what I want screenwriters to think about is the script, of course, is the blueprint. So this the only reason that they're moving to all of those locations. The only reason that they're flying from one place to another is because it started with the script. And there is a real empowerment. If you can revise a script for budget, which you can and always have to do, you can revise a script for climate. So do you need that scene in the airplane? Do you need that fast car? Do you need, you know, you can do basically an emissions pass on your script as you're in the pre-pro process and look at it from a climate standpoint. And so I want folks to think about that. But I also just want to empower screenwriters that this idea of climate storytelling has always been people think, oh, it means either environmental documentary, or it means a dystopian sci-fi where the earth has already been trashed. And now we're, we're struggling against which all of which is valid. And those pieces are not are very much alive as as far as people's interest and what's being made. But there's also the idea, like I like to say to people, what if in Ocean's Eleven, they were the heist was a piece of carbon capture technology. It's still a sexy, slick, cool movie, but there's this little bit of climate stuff in the center of it. And so I think what we're opening up to and what we're getting to, this is like this beginning of this movement around there's rom-coms that can have a climate focus. There's heist movies, like I said, any kind of a genre because we are living in it right now. It's no longer like, oh, in the future, climate change is going to happen. It's happening now. And so I guess my plug would just say, you probably have existing scripts that can be adapted, whether it's a theme or a character or even an obstacle for them, like a natural weather event that's waylays your character. You can think about your scripts in terms of climate and and think about that also in terms of what's going to happen when it goes into production. Do we need all of these props and costumes and things? Like, how can I look at the script from a sustainability standpoint without changing the story, but just as we do with budget and making amendments for budget, we can do that for climate too. So that would that's my soapbox moment there. <laughs> 
No, that's great. I don't know if I'm always, I've got all kinds of bins that I put things in so that I'm being sustainable in my house and I have my bags I take to Trader Joe's, but I don't know that I thought of it quite that way. And that's a great, that's like that carbon capture whatever for a heist film. That's a great idea. Right. I I keep, I keep saying it to people and I'm like, one of these days someone will, (laughs) it's not the movie that I'm going to write, but someone should. Yeah. Maybe someone who's listening to this will do it. Yeah. Free idea. Um, Well, thank you so much, Lee. And thank you. And, and we'll talk soon. Yeah. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye, Chris. Thank you so much for tuning in to Bliss with Spinster. If any of these conversations are resonating with you, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can find Blissful Spinster on Instagram and Twitter and through our website, blissfulspinster.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me on this journey. And until next week, go find your happy.